Hello and welcome to High Tea Obsessed. I am your host, Thomas Boomhauer, and for you lovely listeners out there, today I have quite the episode in store for you, because today we're going to be talking about the Bone Wars, this crazy rivalry between two paleontologists that took place during the latter half of the 19th century. That's right, people, we're talking about a old fashioned beef which you gotta love, right? Uh, involving scientists, which you also gotta love. Nerdy beefs, that's always good stuff. And involving dinosaur fossils, which you triple gotta love. That's really like the trifecta of what you want. You got a beef, you got dinosaurs, and you got scientists. I rest my case. Um, but that's it, you know, and we're gonna check out all that very soon. But before we get to that, let's get into the news, shall we? So if you're into football like I am, should have checked out the season preview if you didn't. No big deal, but I'm mad at you. Um, anyway, if you're into football, you no doubt know by now that the NFL season officially kicked off this week. And it was a pretty eventful opening weekend. Now, you know, this is week one of a season that only saw three preseason games because they expanded to 17 games. A lot of COVID-related time missed in the training camp, in the offseason, some injury stuff. Uh, a lot of teams held their guys out for the preseason, too, this year. And that could be a trend that's been happening more and more recently. So, overreactions are not only possible, but very likely at this stage. But what are we going to do? We're probably going to do some anyway. And I'm not going to do a weekly recap by any means. It's not going to be a thing. And most weeks I probably won't even talk about the Giants. But today I did want to because of the dearth of other news I wanted to talk about out there. And also, it's week one. So, even though the Giants kind of got mollywopped a little bit. It's still exciting times. Except, you know, as Roy Kent would say, fuck. The Giants did not look great. He'd say it Britishly, so it'd be like, fuck. But I can't do it. Got like a little bit of stuffy nose going on. Anyway, the Giants sort of fat L to the Broncos. They were absolutely carved up by Teddy Bridgewater, who he might be challenging Devonta Smith for skinniest active player in, in the NFL. And that's like, you know, Teddy Bridgewater's fine. He's very capable, but he's not dynamic, he's not electric, and he made the defense supposed to be top 10 this year, just like he went through them like a hot knife through butter, it was tough, he diced them up and down the field, and you know, the Giants sort of did their bend but not break thing, they were just unable to get off the field on third downs, uh, seemingly no matter the down and distance, right, Um, the offense, despite the score, looked okay at times, it wasn't good by any means, the issue is that the Broncos held the ball almost the entire game, so it was hard to get any sort of rhythm going, especially because, like in the running game, which had very little rhythm and very little production. And, of course, Daniel Jones went ahead and fumbled again, which, in addition to generating some Daniel Jones fumble memes on the internet, stalled a promising-looking drive, which is kind of the story of the Giants in the Daniel Jones era. You know, Jones looks good at times, and then crucial mistake. And... I think, despite the doom and gloom we're dealing with right now, things could pick up around week four. We got some new pieces to integrate, all that stuff. Um, especially if dash when Jason Garrett loses his play calling duties and Freddie Kitchen states over the steps, which might sound crazy, but if you recall Baker's rookie year, Freddie Kitchen was calling plays when Baker started to take off. 
So, I mean, we'll see. We'll see what happens. I'm still in that. I think the Giants can win seven games. We'll see. If they play like this against the Falcons week three, we're fucked. But if they play well, turn things around, we'll see. In other news, the Hawkeye trailer dropped last night. Or I guess it was yesterday. Um, and I was I was a little underwhelmed. And I think, I know it's the first trailer and the states of the other shows have just been higher. So it's kind of hard to get excited for Hawkeye when, you know, we saw that multiverse stuff going on. And probably more multiverse stuff to come. But not a ton going on in the trailer. We see a little bit of charming Haley Steinfeld and snarky charming Jeremy Renner. That's about it, really. I didn't do, like, the deep dive, read all the articles with the Easter eggs and theories and stuff. And I'm not, like, a huge Hawkeye guy from the comics. So if you are, I'm sure you're more excited for this. But I'm still pretty excited for the show overall because Haley Steinfeld is, of course, delightful. And as anyone who has seen Town... Uh, the town, or tag can attest, Jeremy Renner can be a serious, like, toe-to-toe with anyone after, and I don't know that we necessarily have needed a bigger role for Hawkeye in the MCU at large, and I don't know that Hawkeye has necessarily necessarily been mishandled to date in the MCU, but I guess some, you know, comet Hawkeye purists would say that he has been, and he did, I think, you know, he got that Heisman, he did get his Heisman Trophy moment with the fucking Infinity Gauntlet in Endgame, so chill out, guys, but but I do think Jeremy Renner has been wasted, if that makes sense. Uh, final bit of news before we get into the main Jimmy Chandra here. Biotech company Colossus Laboratories and Biosciences, an Austin, Texas-based company, wants to use CRISPR, to, you know, like the gene editing type of thing, uh, to bring back our boy, the woolly mammoth. You're probably asking, why? Why do they want to do that? Well, they say it's to increase biodiversity, which you know, should help regulate climate change a little bit, just some of those uh, plants down that need to be, get some good stuff going on, regulate biomes possibly. But also they want to create a tourist destination, which, yep, you know, that's the other boot. That makes sense. I think this could be cool, you know. Um, Maybe it's not right to meddle in things sometimes. And I know conspiracy podcasts are probably going to be all over this, going nuts. And they do sometimes get up in arms about this, you know, like, oh, we're playing God the... Commandments are going to come, we're going to call down a new plague, all that stuff. Here's my take on it. If I get to see a woolly mammoth in person, I'm all in, I'm cool with it. If I don't get to see a woolly mammoth, I'm out. I'm all the way out. Anyway, with that little bit of catch-up done, that little bit of news out of the way, let's go ahead and dig into this main topic here. Like I said in the introduction, today we're going to be talking about the Bone Wars, which are also sometimes called the Great Dinosaur Rush, which is obviously trying to make a connection between the gold rush more than a war but i like bone wars better so i'm gonna stick with that and not say the other thing for the rest of the podcast anyway the bone wars as you can probably guess by the name is a super cool story it essentially boils down to this huge decades-long ego battle between two paleontologists which in the end would ruin both seeing them penniless alone and with no one to take care of their prized dino collection this is a type of drama we absolutely love to see here at High Tea Obsessed. The two central figures of the Bone Wars were Othniel Charles Marsh and Edward Drinker Cope. And although most websites and articles uh, that cover the story begin by giving a brief biography of Othniel Charles Marsh, we're going to begin with the homie Edward Drinker Cope. You're probably wondering, why are they doing that? What's going on there? Well, it's because my guy Eddie Cope has cooler facial hair, if I'm being honest with you. 
dude kind of looks like Val Kilmer from Tombstone. And I love it. I love to see it. Anyway, Cope was born into a wealthy Quaker family in Philadelphia in 1840 and apparently was recognized as a scientific prodigy at a young age, and he published his first scientific paper at the age of 18. Marsh had a little bit of a different upbringing, you could say. He was born nine years earlier in 1931 to a family of farmers in Lockport, New York. Uh, PBS, as part of their American Experience series, notes that his future renown as a paleontologist would have come as a surprise to those who knew him as a boy, because his father's only ambitions for him were to become a farmhand on the family farm. However, fate would intervene because his uncle George Peabody, his mother's older rich brother, took an interest in improving his nephew's lot in life, helping him to pursue an education, including going to Yale and then graduate school in Germany. Again, we see a sort of stark contrast here between the two, because Cope had little formal education, never completing high school, as ironically... His father wanted to see his son become a gentleman farmer. Uh, Cope, of course, thought that it was pretty boring, so he wasn't really, he was, you know, he was sneaking off to do science whenever he could. Now we see some similarities between the two as well. They were two precocious kids with incredibly strong interests in science, not super supportive fathers. Both of their mothers were dead by the time they were three. And I think, you know, these similarities combined with their natural confrontational behavior, personalities, their egos... Uh, they explain why they ultimately would become such intensely bitter rivals. Another similarity is that they both found themselves in Germany during the American Civil War. Uh, Cope was there because his pacifist, wealthy father, you know, they're Quakers, they don't believe in war, obviously, uh, sent him there to avoid the war. Meanwhile, Marsh, who was a grad student, like I mentioned a second ago, he was there studying. For a time, it appears the two were boys, they were thick as thieves, which makes sense, you know. All these similarities we've touched on earlier, two nerdy American guys chilling in Germany. It's not hard to imagine friendships far as flying all over the damn place. But this friendship wasn't built to last, obviously, because if Cope and Marsh were to remain boys, we probably wouldn't be talking about them right now. Anyway, upon returning home to America, the two remained amicable for some time. Uh, Marsh would, upon his return, was named a professor of vertebrate paleontology at Yale in 1866, becoming the first professor of paleontology in the United States of America. And Cope's father was able to secure Edward a professorship at Haverford College teaching zoology. Uh, and they, were, they had to give him an honorary master's degree because he never completed high school, so he was able to teach. <laughs> Uh, despite their time teaching, the two were able to find, identify, and describe a number of fossils during this time. And because they remained friends during this period, they even named species after one another, with Cope naming a fossilized amphibian Pitianus marshi, marshi in Marsh's honor. And Marsh followed suit a year later, naming a giant snake Mozarus Copianus a year later. Uh, the rivalry didn't really begin heating up until 1868. So Cope was crushing it, you know, kind of doing his thing, excavating, and getting some fossils out in New Jersey. And he invited his friend, Othniel Marsh, out to, check, uh, out to check it out, you know, take a look, take a dander, see what he sees. And that's just good friend stuff right there. Unfortunately, Marsh, it turns out, you know, kind of a dick. And he goes to the guy who owns the land where the date was going on, the quarry, and he goes behind Cope's back, and he's like, if any more fossils are found... Send them to me over at the Peabody Institute. Did move, did move. 
To follow that up, March again ruffles Trope's feathers that same year. Uh, so in 1868 again, Trope was sent a new species of plesiosaur that was originally recovered by an army surgeon in Kansas. And what might be considered a trend for his career, and also Marsh's, uh, Trope rushed to publish these findings, catalog the species, and get all that stuff out. And he accidentally put the creature's head on the tail and not at the neck. So if you've seen a plesiosaur, it's like, you know, the Loch Ness Monster type of thing with a long neck, pretty long tail. He was like, oh, look at this. It's weird and like backwards. New species. And they're like, hey, buddy, it's on backwards. Now, this mistake, not a big deal back then. Not a super like huge thing because paleontology is a new science. There's a lot of leeway. And his boys were like, hey, dude, no big deal. Players fuck up sometimes. But supposedly, and accounts do differ here, but supposedly Marsh was the first to point out Trope's error to him, and when another paleontologist named Joseph Leidy confirmed it, Trope was super embarrassed, and he printed a correction and tried to purchase all known copies of the journal his findings had appeared at the American Philosophical Society. It's important to note, of course, that a lot of sources have it flipped, with Leidy being the first to notice Trope's mistake and Marsh confirming it, pointing it like just being like, oh yeah? after the fact, but regardless of the truth, Marsh would later write, when I informed Professor Cope of it, his wounded vanity received a shock from which it has never recovered, and he has since been my bitter enemy. Like many others, the two headed west in the 1870s, and their rivalry only intensified from there as they raced to outdo one another to find new dinosaurs, identify and name their creations, and beat one another to publication. Now, Marsh would ultimately prove no match for Trope in terms of publication, because Trope was just constantly churning out articles. I publish an absolutely staggering number every year, going so far to purchase his own journal to in order to ensure sip the swift publication of his findings. All told, by the time he died, would publish over 1,400 articles, which is insane. But this volume was sort of a two-edged sword because it made it easier for Marsh and his other critics to discredit him because, you know, he'd have some typos, he'd have a lot of mistakes going on. So the reason the two paleontologists headed out west is that the east coast just isn't a great place for finding fossilized remains, even then. We'd have some seashells going on, of course. Any kid who's been in their backyard has probably found some. Uh, we have a lot of footprints and stuff like that as well. But for the most part, the really cool, like, the stuff that's really going to get you fired up, really excited, bones and, like, complete remains and stuff like that, that's going to be found out west. Like, Wyoming, Colorado, uh, South Dakota, stuff like that. So, Trope dominated the publication game, as we've talked about. Marsh was more fixated on uncovering, on uncovering the finds. He would even employ spies to track his rival's progress at various dates. Rumors also persist to this day that the two would go so far as to use dynamite to destroy bones before their rivals could get to them and find them. So if they found, like, another of the same species, they would dynamite them. Or if they found, like, smaller bones, but they wouldn't be... Like, basically, if they want to be able to uncover secondary fossils at a site, they would destroy them, is the allegation. However, recent scholars have suggested that that might have just been like them spreading rumors and fucking with one another just by mind games had games with each other because there have been like some of the sites that were reportedly destroyed uh have been found just like buried but regardless this turned out to be another legacy of the bone wars as the constant feuding between the two led to all sorts of tricks lies deceptions like those i've mentioned but also accusations of academic impropriety 
like plagiarism and stuff like that. This combined with the errors the two kept making in their bid to outdo one another would damage the standing of U.S. paleontology in Europe for years to come. But despite all this nastiness and the damage it did to the two men, which I'll touch more on in a little bit, uh, the rivalry was also boon to science as a whole, and specifically paleontology. So let me back up, you know, get more into that stuff. Following 1868, Trope got himself an unpaid position with the U.S. Geological Survey, USGS, which allowed him to find a lot of fossils out west and publish his findings. But he wasn't making any bread, no scratch. Part of the reason the USGS was cool with bringing him on board was that in addition to being a prolific writer, he also had a taste for the art of it, using flowery descriptors and stuff like that, which, as anyone who's been in academia has to know, probably drove his fellow academics insane because, in my experience at least, most people are like, God forbid the person to write and they hate it. Anyway, uh, Cope teaming up with the USGS under Ferdinand Hayden broadened his rift with Marsh, but also other paleontologists, including Joseph Leidy, as Leidy had been the one receiving the bulk of the fossils that Hayden was finding as he was like surveying the West. Uh, during this period, Cope was crushing it, making dozens of finds and burning a lot of bridges, like I said. Uh, the rivalry turned really nasty in 1873, though, because Marsh and Cope were both making these pretty important finds, like another, another thing, tons of new fossils every year and all this stuff. Also, at this point, I do want to point out, they were doing relatively little of the unearthing. It was mostly their staff and their, like, Marsh especially was mostly chilling back east, uh, especially later on, and Cope was in the field, but, like, mostly they were abusing their workers and making them work really hard. Anyway, um, there was a lot of fossils being found regardless of who was actually dating them up. So they, along with Lighty to an extent, they were constantly rushing to be the first to claim credit for these finds. So they were just wrecking the scientific process, the like order of who gets to name things, and just like creating a lot of duplicative efforts for the scientific community. Because they're sending telegrams out east, all basically independently discovering the same dinosaur over and over and renaming it. Sometimes they allegedly knew they'd rediscovered something that the other one had and just renamed it, hoping to get the credit and like pointing to some small difference between the two animals as reasons for to be a new species. Def and these were like, you know, different specimens discovered, but sometimes the same species. Uh, two big examples of this were when Lighty, Marsh, and Cope all gave different names for the same species of dinosaur. And there's also the whole Brontosaurus kerfuffle, which we'll get into later. During this period, described as the early stages of the Bone Wars from 1872 to 1877, Cope would eventually leave his job with the USGS, get a new job with the Army Corps of Engineers, which paid him, but it also limited his ability to collect the fossils, while Marsh was still able to collect fossils at a rapid rate at this point. And he would go so far as to insert himself into the disintegrating relationship between the United States and the indigenous nations living in present-day South Dakota, uh, he would attempt to lobby on their behalf in exchange for rights to the fossils. The rivalry between Tope and Marsh would escalate still further in the periods between 1877 and Tope's death in 1897 as the Transcontinental Railroad kept growing and more and more of the West kept opening up. Also, because rail, rail workers were discovering more fossils and sending the, like, hey, my guys, we found this thing out here. And so news was getting out to West and Cope, and they would, like, you know, 
rushing to be the first to get there to claim it and name it. So all these reports from the rail workers turned out to be true, and in 1877 alone, Marsh described and named dinosaurs, including Stegosaurus, Allosaurus, and Diplodocus. And that's like a pretty big feather in the cap. Like, Stegosaurus, Allosaurus are two of the biggest dinosaurs around. Like, biggest in popularity, not size. Despite Marsh's best efforts to keep this area, which was the Como Bluff secret, uh, Cope caught wind of it eventually and sent in some dinosaur rustlers allegedly to steal some of these discoveries. And this is where all the chicanery and stuff with, like, dynamite and all that comes into play. Because we have the two teams constantly going at it. And it must have sucked to be a worker, right? Because you got these two egomaniacs working you to the bone, uh, claiming all the credit for the discoveries. And you got, you're, like, constantly fighting with the other team because these two guys don't like each other. And so there's all this sabotage, like, spying, uh, shady stuff, and, like, even rock fights at one point. So it just must have sucked. So as I've been saying, in addition to their fossil rivalry, the two eviscerated one another whenever possible in print and also kept racing to make, and also kept racing to beat one another to make discoveries. One instance of this was when Marsh put the head of a separate dinosaur, either accidentally or hoping to do something cool maybe, uh, and he called the Ap- Apatosaurus, which already existed, uh, he put a different head on it and called it the Brontosaurus, which never really existed apparently, and it's just something we all like because of the cool name Thunder Lizard, you know, Brontosaurus, uh, I believe it was in Jurassic Park, no, and then those are Brachiosaurus, uh, the Brontosaurus burger, I think, from Flintstones. But anyway, never really existed. But then in 2015, a uh, new paleontologist suggested that they had found enough specimens to type it as a different species based on these newer finds. So that's pretty cool. Brontosauruses are bat, baby. In addition to their battles in scientific journals and in the field cataloging dinosaurs, the two also waged a battle in the press and the political spheres as well. Marsh, because of his inheritance from his uncle and the lasting connections that these gave him, he was well-placed throughout his life. Um, and in 1882, he became the chief paleontologist at the USGS. Obviously, Marsh pretty much immediately abused this power, denying Cope access to government funding while at the same time gaining access to these vast funds. Cope hoped that uh, investing in silver mines to get him some revenue, but this backfired spectacularly, spectacularly, and he was pretty much broke. So by 1890, Cope, who again came from a wealthy family and influential family, was destitute, separated from his wife and child, living alone in an apartment in Philadelphia. Marsh was not satisfied with his uh, opponent's demise, and so he enacted a rule that any discoveries that had been made with public funds belonged not to the person who found them, but to the federal government, obviously hoping to confiscate Cope's fossil collection. However, Cope kept meticulous records and was able to prove that almost all of his fossils had been found using his own funding, and because of this, he went about destroying Marsh. So, as I just said, he kept meticulous records. This wasn't just of his own expenditures and expeditions. He also kept a record of all of Marsh's mistakes scientifically, um, all of his mistakes in journals and stuff like that, and had the selection of accusations of like financial, academic, moral, you name it, impropriety from throughout the years. And so this brought renewed scrutiny to Marsh's position and work, resulting in the loss of most of Marsh's personal fossil collection, which went to Yale and the Smithsonian eventually. 
So Pope had given his collection of misdeeds to the New York Herald, which I guess had a reputation at the time of being the magazine trying to like publish these scandals and rumors and stuff like that. And so the New York Herald publishes a story titled Scientists, Scientists Wage Bitter Warfare, which captured the public imagination and led to demands for an itemization of Marsh's budget at the USGS and his resignation. Eventually, the scandal would die down, but the rivalry between the two persisted until Cope's death in 1897. And it left the two men poor, familyless, reputations, and shambles. And both were also unable to find buyers for the remaining collection and forced to split them, split them up after their deaths. Cope, however, would issue one final challenge before his death. He donated his brain to science, and back in this time, they thought, you know, bigger brain meant smarter. He was like, hey, Marshy, definitely my brain's bigger than yours. Now, uh, Marsh did not take the challenge, so we don't know. We don't know for a fact who had a bigger brain. Sad. So who won the Bone Wars? If we think about it, Cope can claim 56 discoveries to his name, while Marsh can claim 80. So, in a sense, you could say that Marsh won. But if you ask me, there are two real winners that emerged from all this. Charles Darwin, ever heard of him, and us, the people. So Darwin wins because these two dudes did more than almost anyone at the time to demonstrate the viability of his theory of evolution. And this is um, maybe especially true of Marsh, who was able to fill in like the entire fossil record of horses apparently through all his discoveries also cope was a uh, neo-lamarckian who basically believes like okay i'm as a scientist but also someone who strongly believes in god that evolution is much more individual than on a species level so it would be like if you're so like if you were someone who was a manual laborer and you're doing a lot of work and you were like big beefy arms you're jacked you would pass on those genes and your son or daughters would have but your offspring would have those same like muscly traits and it was passed on like individual to individual and not species like on a species-wide level so ironically you know his work contributed to proving to the extent that it is because it's so theory blah 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 um evolution as darwin proposed it and then we the people win of course because these dudes discovered a ton of really cool dinosaurs some of the fossils are amongst the most impressive ever discovered even to this day and they can be found in places like the smithsonian the peabody institute um, museum in philadelphia i can't place the name of at this moment and this you know led to our continued fascination with dinosaurs which led to 2.5 good jurassic park movies so between that, the museums, the dinosaur toys we all played with as kids, and just general that phase when you're a kid being obsessed with dinosaurs, like getting all the books, watching all the documentaries, all that stuff, I think that's a dub. I think that's a dub for the people. However, it's important to note that there are some real losers here as well. I think you could argue that both Cope and Marsh lost the Bone Wars for reasons we talked about earlier. Like I said, they damaged their own reputations, ruined themselves financially and all that stuff. And also just like wrecked the standing of American paleontologists with their European counterparts for years and years to come. Their feud also dimmed the lights of some of their contemporaries, kind of like they were hot in the spotlight, obviously, including Joseph Leidy, who faded from the field and his contributions to paleontology have largely been forgotten by the general public. Tough stuff for our guy. So all in all, I think that's a pretty crazy story. 
has almost everything you want, right? We got explosions, explosions. We got intrigue. We got spies. We got name calling. We have science. So really great stuff. And given all that, it's no wonder that HBO was ready to adapt this story into a series back in 2013. It was set to star James Gandolfini as you know Tony Soprano as Othniel Charles Marsh, and Steve Carell as Edward Drinker Cope. But it was ultimately scrapped after uh, Gandolfini's tragic passing later that year, uh, which is tragic not only because you know obviously Gandolfini died and that's very sad, but because it would have been a super sick story, like a awesome series that's like pretty close to the Soprano style Thomas Edison story I want as a series. Because a lot of these early scientists, explorers, discoverers, inventors, whatever, they were shady characters. They're doing real bad stuff out here, just being scumbags and, like, you know, beating people up and having, like, basically thuds rough people up, stuff like that. Anyway, be sure to let me know what you thought about this story here, because that's all I got. That's all I got for today. But before you leave, let me address a few things for you here. First, let's get into recommendations. I want to go ahead and recommend 1491 by Charles Mann which is a good intro into what was going on in the Americas prior to Columbus, the sophistication of these Native um, Native American, like indigenous cultures, uh, pre-European contact. And I'd also like to recommend American Nations by Colin Woodard, which suggests that America is 11, 11 unique nations with unique foundings, cultures, and that this, like, cultural differences and all that explain a lot of our current divides and issues as a nation to this day. Both of these are like kind of similar vibe uh, and really, really just interesting read. They're both more primers on their subjects than super deep dives into them, but they're nice starting points. I also want to recommend that you hop on YouTube and check out the Skyrim YouTube videos by Pertinax. They're really good. This is like these really weird mashup of stuff like Skyrim with The Sopranos or Top Deer or um forest dump and they're just like really funny finally i have some updates for you guys as i've been i've been trying to get this going for a while but i can finally announce it next week we're going to have on very special guests kyle filson and tam hale of expanded perspectives uh and expanded perspectives elite two dudes who i've been listening to for years they've really been a big influence on how i've done my show and so i'm super excited to have them on and talk about some paranormal stuff and some of their other interests outside of the paranormal, the unexplained, and like the stuff they talked about on their show. So they have that's my favorite paranormal podcast for sure. And I definitely recommend checking out both their shows if you're into that type of thing. So that's happening next week. And then I'm going to take a break probably for a month or so. Um, but I might be doing like an NBA ramp up thing and stuff like that. I might be making an appearance or two on another show. So stay tuned for that. And I'll probably put stuff out randomly. So be sure to follow the Instagram and Twitter like I've been saying for updates. If you don't want to follow the social media for some reason, I will be doing a Season 3 trailer before the main Season 3 comes out. So definitely subscribe to the podcast wherever you find your podcast. And then you'll be able to get the Season 3 trailer, which features me pretending to be an NFL player. That's all I'm going to say. That's all I'm going to say. As always, if you did what you're hearing, make sure to hop on, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and wherever you do your podcast, five stars only. And definitely subscribe, like I said. 
The reviews are huge because they make me feel good and help the podcast grow. So that's nice. And, you know, I just appreciate anyone that's done it. And definitely be sure to follow the pod on social media too at high T underscore obsessed underscore podcast on Instagram and at high T O podcast on Twitter. And like I said, that's all I got going on right now. So until next time, catch y'all on the flip.